Good morning, Crossway. This week's sermon text finds us in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, where God's word says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jeff. Well, some of you have been waiting for this for years. This is our final sermon in the series in Matthew. I've really enjoyed uh, going through Matthew with you all. I think this will be the longest I've ever spent preaching in any book. Our next series will be uh, beginning when I return back from our family vacation in Philippians. Uh, it's not our family vacation, it's just in case I said that too tightly. Um, so I'm looking forward to being in Philippians as well. I think it's a sweet letter, it's a letter of encouragement, but this morning as we consider Matthew, uh, I will remind you that we looked at these two verses a few weeks ago, it was probably about two months ago actually, um, and we, we pushed it in the sense of global missions, because Jesus in, in the center of this theme says, go into all the nations. What I'd like to do is take a fresh look at it this morning and highlight Really, the, the, I think the theme of the text, and that is the Christ-centeredness of the work of the church. So maybe I could ask a kind of a, a pullback and ask a bigger question, that is, what is the reason the church exists? Why, do, why are we here? Why do we do what we do? Uh, it's a profound and important question we need to wrestle with, and, and I think it's a common question for a lot of things. Uh, my, my children... Love watching America's Got Talent. I'm not sure exactly why it fascinates them so much, but there's this common question that is frequently asked by, by one of the judges as they interview people. They're about ready to do their thing. Usually it's singing or some lame magic show or some quirky thing. And, you know, half the time it's a total, like, crash and burn, train wreck type thing. And they'll say, so why do you want to do this? And often it's, it's some type of obscured theme of something along the lines of, I want to be famous and this is the best way to get there. They don't quite say it so simply, but, but it's, it's along the lines of, I've always wanted to do this. This is my heart's desire and this platform is the way I'm going to do it. If you just peel that back a little bit, that is depressing. Right? Like my whole life, is about singing and having other people appreciate it. That's it. Like, wow. That's, that's rough. I mean, what happens if the Lord takes your voice? What happens if people don't like your voice? What happens if you're tone deaf? Your whole reason for existence is vaporized. It's true. If we look around our world and we ask, why are people doing what they're doing? Often the answers are incredibly shallow. And, and frankly, sometimes you ask, why people go to church? Why do you do this church thing? 
And the answer might be something short-sighted like, well, it makes me feel good or it makes me happy. So I would assume that person doesn't go to church if it doesn't make them happy, if it doesn't make them feel good. Why are we doing this thing? I mean, does, does giving money to the Lord make you feel good? That is not a trick question. Some of you are like, whoa, I don't know how to answer that. I feel like I just got set up. Why do you do church? Why would we send a missionary across the world to sacrifice his culture, his financial security, his family's comfort, their, their pathway of education to be a successful in this world? Why would he sacrifice all of that? Why? I think the answer of this text, um, I, we could say it a couple different ways, but I think the answer is Jesus is worth it. Our Savior's worth it. He's worth all of this. We gather together on a Sunday morning for the sake of Jesus Christ. We gather together that for His sake we would glorify Him. This text tells us that without saying it so bluntly. Let me see if I can show you from this text. I'm going to use the phrase church work in my outline. Sometimes I don't always reflect my outline very well verbally to you all, but my outline, my three points all have the phrase church work. And I think that's because this text is about how to do the glory of God, how to pursue the glory of Christ in, in, in the life of the church. So let me just uh, start by reminding you that this is a, a verse to the church, not to individuals. I think you see that in a couple different ways. Uh, Jesus initially gives this whole exhortation to the group of disciples. It may, it may only be the 11. It says now the 11 disciples were, went to Galilee. But there were other disciples, and by the time Jesus ascends, we know there were lots of others that had, had been around him uh, during his teaching because 1 Corinthians 15 says so. so. So Jesus is speaking to them, verse 17. They worship him, although some doubted. That would probably be doubting Thomas. John records in the gospel how he doubted because he wasn't present when Jesus first appeared, and he didn't believe the account of the other disciples until Jesus appears and says, put your hand on my side and see my wounds. Verse 18, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Now there's no expectation that 11 or even 511 people are going to make disciples of all nations. Further, if you keep going, he says, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I've commanded. So in order for, for this to happen, that is for them to go to all nations, for them to see people come to saving knowledge of Christ, and for them to be indoctrinated such that they hear all that Christ has commanded is a task way too big for just this limited number of disciples. Further, Jesus promises his presence will be with them all till when? The end of the age. This is not merely for the disciples. This is for the church in perpetuity until Christ returns and ends the age. So, so this commission, this call to have Christ at the center of church work, it, it goes on beyond culture, beyond national boundaries, and beyond the time of the apostles to the very end of the age. So it's global, and it's, its time extends to the end of the church age. So we talk about the purpose and the reason Jesus is doing this, we at least ought to understand that all of that is in the context of church work. That is what the church does. I'm going to suggest to you three observations from this text where Christ is center. And the first one is this. 
the, the work of the church is founded upon the position of Christ. It's founded upon the position of Christ. Look at the text and notice how Jesus introduces this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ now sits in a position that he previously did not occupy. It has now been given. So Jesus is commissioning them on the basis of something different than he could have prior to this. I think that's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. For instance, Philippians 2, probably most plainly, speaks of Jesus Christ, or the Son of God, who, although being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. He humbles himself, becomes a man, becomes obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalts him. And he is given a name above every name. So, so notice the logical sequence Paul lays out for us in Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, goes through his humility and obedient death. Therefore, God highly exalts him. So the exalted position of Christ is not something that's inherent to the Son of God. It's not something that he presumptively just chose and said, I'm going to sit on the throne and therefore I have position it is a reward conferred upon him for his faithful service, and it's a result of the position that Christ possesses. It's granted to him by the Father. Ephesians 1 would say something similar, and I want to go there uh, after some time, but uh, Paul in that explanation in Ephesians speaks of Christ being placed over all things for the sake of the church. Again, he's placed over all things. So Jesus Christ is now in a position, now in the sense of after his obedient death and his resurrection, now possesses something he didn't previously possess. And that position is the basis by which he sends his disciples out. In fact, that's the core of the ministry of the church, the declaration of who our Savior is, his exalted position as King of kings, as Savior, as Redeemer, as Rescuer for us. You might remember last week we spoke about him being the Son of Man. You recall that? You're here? Work out those memory cobwebs and get there maybe. Okay, so, so let me just remind you of what Matthew has done where I think he would presume we're there mentally. So we go back to Chapter 1, where Jesus is born as human. And this is essential for redemption, that Jesus Christ be human. This is why First Timothy can say there's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who is human, who's man. The, the, point, the point being that Jesus Christ is a second Adam. It, our, our first Adam represented us before God, and in his representation, he is asked by God to obey him and not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is also, by implication, the tree of life that he should have eaten from. So there's this, this command, don't do this, and I think probably we can assume fairly careful, or fairly safely that he was supposed to eat the other tree. And in the middle of this paradise, without pressure of hunger, with, with all the ease and simplicity of just one singular command, Adam disobeyed. I don't know if you parents have ever done this to your children. Like, I gave you one thing to do. Just one. 
and you couldn't do the one thing. I, I can only imagine that that might be something of an echo of what God felt like with the Garden of Eden. I gave you one thing, Adam. Just one. There's a complexity of sin there. Right? He, he didn't trust God. He didn't listen to the singular revelation of God. He allowed the lies to subvert it. His wife was deceived and he didn't leave his home. There was elements of pride and arrogance. There was a desire to be something God had not called him to be. There's a complex of sin, but at the end of the day, you ate the fruit. You disobeyed. We move forward thousands of years and see Jesus Christ. I don't know if you catch the parallels here, but in the deepest hunger, having not eaten for 40 days and having the pressures of hell attacking him, Satan presses him to eat a stone, and he won't. Instead, he trusts God to supply. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that God supplies. And Jesus Christ, unlike Adam in paradise, in the absolute privations of the wilderness and absolute starvation, says, I will obey. A better Adam. He's not merely a better Adam. He's a better David. David this king of Israel, this prototype of man's best king. The one who in many ways foreshadows a better king, Jesus. Standing on his palace is tempted and seduced by his own desires for another woman. He ends up having adultery and in the the absolute inconceivable nature of the sin violates one of his sweet friends' trust and sleeps with his wife and then murders him. David is king. He could have had pretty much any girl in the land who wasn't married. He slept with one of his dear friends' wives. He had it all. And he, and he abdicates his right to be God's representative over Israel. I think it's where his plea comes in in, in Psalm 51, not, not to take the spirit that had anointed and empowered him to be king away from him, is he is terrified that God is going to reject him like God had rejected Saul. Remember that afflicting spirit hit Saul, and Saul goes, crazy as king. I think David is afraid he's going to lose the right to kingship. We move forward, and again, we see Jesus Christ under temptation. Adam in paradise falls, David in his palace falls, Jesus in the wilderness, under the pressures of hell, stands obedient to the Father. He's not just a better Adam, he's a better David. Not only is he a better David, he's a better Moses. Okay, we're, we're tracking through why Jesus has been given this position above all. It's because as a better Adam, he stands with us as human. As a better Adam, he didn't disobey as he represents us. Instead, he obeyed to the point of death. As, as a better David, he established his ability to, to govern with integrity. Rather than using the people under him for his own pleasure, Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve. Rather than 
fleecing another man and taking his wife, he gives his life away as a ransom. This is who our king is. Not merely that, but you see the reflections of Moses. Moses leads Israel for 40 years in a wilderness. And do you think there's, there's a point there with Jesus being 40 days in the wilderness as kind of a, a, a typological connection between those two? Not only that, Moses gives the law on Mount Sinai and Jesus reframes the law on the mountain. And so we have the Sermon on the Mount. Moses was the agent through whom God cared for and shepherded the people and fed them with manna from heaven. Jesus is a better Moses who fed the 5,000. Moses, in anger, disobeyed God, was barred from the promised land. Jesus, by obedience to God, fulfills all of the promises to us so that every promise of God is, yes, only in Christ. Jesus is a better Adam. He's a better David. He's a better Moses. And so he stands as this central hope of the church because of his position as Lord over all. Colossians 1, he would have preeminence in everything. Ephesians chapter 1, he is over everything so that the church would be blessed with the very fullness of God. Jesus Christ is all in all for the sake of the church, Ephesians 1 tells us. So when Jesus begins this this commission to his church to do church work, it starts with this. Who is the center of why and how and what we do? It's Jesus. He is the one we call people to look at. And it is by his agency that we go forth. I I was struck so, so profoundly by the thought that Jesus is the sower. I may be someone who delivers the gospel to another person, but who is the one who plants the gospel? His name is Jesus. Who is the one who is the judge at the end of the ages? Who is the king that sits enthroned and judges between the sheep and the goats? His name is Jesus. Who is the one to whom God has given all authority and judgment? His name is Jesus. And so as the Lord ends his ministry on earth, you see the women worshiping him. And then in verse 17 and 18, you see the disciples worshiping him. And Jesus says, now you see the position. Having accomplished this work of obedience as a better Adam, as a better David, as a better Moses, as you see who I truly am, go. On the basis of Christ's position, the foundation for what we do is who he is. But that's not where Jesus stops. The work of the church is centered not only, or is it was founded on the position of Christ, but it's centered also on the person of Christ. Look at how we do ministry. Verse 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, okay, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, the mission extends to all of the created universe, right? Like, go out to all of it. Why? Because he is king over all of it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a lot of alls there. 
going back, all authority is given. Go to all the nations. Teach them all I've commanded you, and I'm with you all the days. But I want you to consider the audacity of the mission itself. Go and make disciples. Is disciple a personal word? Is disciple a personal word? It absolutely is, but, but we don't feel like it. It feels like go garden. It, it doesn't feel personal, but, but a, a disciple always has a, you might say discipler, they would say rabbi. That, that is the person whom they attach themselves, who they fully devote themselves to in obedience, and whose teaching governs them supremely. That is, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he is calling them to go get followers who follow Jesus. It's an incredibly audacious claim. But if I said, hey, go make disciples, you all hear in that something different than what Jesus is here is saying to them. If I say, go make disciples of me, you'd all be like, whoa, and who do you think you are? And rightly so. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, he is telling them that the work of the church is Christ-centered. The mission and ministry that you give to one another must be Christ-centered or it's invalid, worthless, and a waste of time. We call people not to follow us, but to look to Jesus. That's the work of the church. It's, it's Christocentric. It's not anthropocentric. We don't focus on people. We focus on Jesus. Every eye should turn and behold him, not us. And God save us from churches that are about churches. We should be about our Savior. You want healthy churches, they look to Jesus. When you want hope, you don't look to each other. You look to the Lord. And if someone looks to you, please redirect them to the Lord who gives hope and salvation. We look to the one who's exalted. That's why we start with his position. And then we move people to devote themselves to the person. Now, there's a lot of warm and fuzzy, sloppy, bad theology talk in our churches. It makes us feel good, but it's stupid. So, so let, me, let me frame this. In, in a way, I, I, I think Christianity is immensely personal. But we've made it mystical nonsense. Okay, so we relate to Christ. Um, I kind of went a little, like, alliterative here. With commitment to him and conviction about who he is. One is doctrine, one is devotion. Okay, we are devoted to him, but it, it must include doctrine. Right? Like we, we can't be devoted to Jesus Christ and not believe that he's the Son of God. Because that's not true devotion. True devotion requires us to be devoted to the true Son of God. So there's two elements as we relate to any person. That is, we are committed to the person as they truly are. And we have a culture that doesn't like doctrine and truth, and so we have a sloppy Christianity. Who is Jesus? Our world does not know. 
our Christian world is what I'm speaking of. Our, our broad evangelical culture does not know. Does Jesus Christ promise us our best life now? No. Does he promise us a worse life now? No. It's kind of irrelevant to the thing. We're on mission here. And sometimes that is the sweet place of goodness. And sometimes that's the place of suffering and we endure. Because the point isn't the condition we live in. The point is whether we are living in abundance or in poverty, Philippians 4. We have Christ. And with him we are content. Okay, so commitment to him and conviction about what God's word reveals about him. If you are not convinced that the revelation about Jesus Christ in the scripture is true, you are not saved. If you are not committed to the person of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. I'm speaking in general sentences, but that is salvation. It is to be a follower of Christ by committing yourself to him and being convinced that God's revelation about him is true. That is, he's the son of God who lived and died, obeyed the Father, was resurrected for our sins. Right? It's, it is both. That's what true saving faith is. We do not get saved on the basis of our faith. We get saved on the basis of Christ's work, and we respond to it by commitment and conviction of the truth of it. Demons just have conviction. Right? They know the truth. They know doctrine. They have no commitment to the person. So here's the mission of the church. I want, I want you to see it again. Go and make disciples. We are calling people. And sometimes we're calling people, come and hear who he is. And sometimes we're saying, commit to him. Because you know who he is, but you don't love him. You don't believe in him. Sometimes we're saying, hey, you don't even know his name. And so the goal of missions is to go to the nations and say, let me tell you about Jesus, and then appeal to them on the basis of the gracious work of the Spirit, commit to him. And we make disciples then who follow him with their whole lives, commitment and doctrine together. Now look at this text, it says, go. There's a lot of linguistic work we could do here, but go is actually not the center of the sentence, make disciples is. But the point is, is well translated, we do this by going. If you were to go back to verse uh, 7, I think, in verse 9 again, you see the angel and Jesus both telling the women who came, go and tell. Ironically, when they pay off the guards, you know what they say to them? Tell people. We have a call to go and tell about the resurrected Christ, and we have Satan already building a false gospel with false evangelists to go tell people a lie. Jesus Christ is telling his disciples who come face to face with the resurrected Christ and worship him, this is what you now do. You know my position, the exalted king of kings. Go to the nations and call people to follow me. But they're not, they're not following Jesus Christ, the son of God, our Lord, to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. By coming to Jesus Christ, we actually have connection to the triune God, right? This is why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not that we're so Christocentric, we reject the Father and the Spirit. It is that we are reconciled to God, 1 Corinthians says, through Christ. Or maybe I should say better, 
God is reconciling us to himself through Christ. So we are Christocentric because this is how we are accessing all of God's grace is through the one gateway, the one name under heaven, and his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's the one place we get saving grace. So we are Christocentric in our message. We're Christocentric in how we call people to change and shape themselves to be like Christ. Because in him bodily dwells the fullness of God's character. His essence is divine nature. So, Christ's position. Christ's person. And finally, Christ's presence. Maybe you got peas in there. Like you, you will never forget this sermon. Okay, his presence. Uh, one of the sweet remarks here at the end. Um, <clears throat> by the way, let me, let me just say something before I move on completely. Verse 20, teach and then observe all that I've commanded. I've mentioned this frequently, but I, I think we've done a poor job of discipleship when we tell people some of the stuff that God says is unimportant. We need to obey all of it. I think we've all seen those legalistic churches that fight over the dumbest things. And we think it's dumb because that's not us. Not because we don't have our version of dumb here. Okay, so, so the solution is to be so deeply committed to being like Christ. Everything matters, right? Everything matters that Christ has said. Teach them to observe all. All of it. We don't lower the standard of Christ's likeness. But we do offer a lot of grace, restoration, and hope for those who turn to him. We just want to know your feet are pointed towards Christ. When we say, come with us and let's follow Christ together, we don't expect everyone to be in the same place, but we do expect them to be going the same direction towards Christ. So here's the grace. And it's such sweet grace. Lo, I'm with you. All the whole day would be a literal translation. And I think the point is, is it's not just merely this brand of like some generic all of it. It is like all of the day in every moment of the day, he is with us. This, this means something to the New Testament authors. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life in his ministry, he speaks of his defense of the gospel. And he's probably speaking of, of where he was in Caesarea, right there on the, um, the, the, the Mediterranean Sea, as he was being held captive and, and under the Roman guard, and they were asking for his testimony. I know some of those who went on that trip to Israel, we read through that passage in Acts where Paul gives his defense as we were sitting in the ruins of that, that palace there in Caesarea the Mediterranean in front of us. We read through that passage in Acts where Paul gives his defense. Here's what Paul says about that in 2 Timothy 4. He says that, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Does Jesus keep his word? I am with you to the end of the age. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, I was alone. They all abandoned me. And I stood and defended what I've been doing in gospel ministry. And I stood and gave a defense of the gospel itself. And there's only one who stood by me. 
Jesus stood with me. You know, Jesus promises us in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, there am I. You know, when the church needs wisdom, needs to know the will of God, Jesus says he is particularly present to help. Jesus is with us. He gives us this astronomically huge task. Go to where? All the nations. All of them. Well, what are we to do in the nations? This work we can't do. Right? Can you convert anyone? If you could, I want to ask you what you're doing with your kids. <laughs> like, like, we can't just reach into their bodies and change their hearts to love Jesus, and we wish we could. So he sends us on this massive mission. Go get the world to follow me. And we're like, the whole world? We can't get any. We, we have a hard time following you, let alone getting anyone else to do it. This incredible task. And his point is, I am with you. So because of the position of Christ, because of who he is as the, the epicenter of our saving hope, we go. What we do as we go is to make much of Christ and call people to pay attention to him and call them to follow him. Well, what is the empowering hope we have that we can do this task that we can't do? He's with us to strengthen us. As Paul says, he stood with me at my defense and strengthened me. As we wrap up this morning, let me take you to two texts. Let me take you first to Ephesians 1, where I think you see this text kind of played out in the prayer of Paul. In some ways, I had wanted to preach Ephesians next, but it's such a rich book, I wanted to save it until I'm a better preacher. I'm not joking. That's, it's really challenging, but so good. So good. I think you see the play out of, of a lot of the end of that Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go, do this work of disciple making across the globe, and I'm with you. We'll, we'll go back to verse 19, and we'll pick it up. There's, there's multiple phrases that he's laying on top of each other. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, now it says to the church, the point is, for the benefit of the church. So hear this, the position that Christ has granted, the one he speaks of in Matthew 28, where he says, all authority has been given to me. God tells us in Ephesians 1 why it is for the benefit of his church people. For us. Now look at this next phrase, which is his body. That's us. We're his body, right? So that we would be the fullness of him who fills all in all. Something like this, I think, is the intention of the phrase. That we would have the full character of God's godliness. So the benefit of the church is that we might be like Christ. 
So when Jesus says, I am with you to the very end of the age, there's a promise that God's power would be poured out on his church, not to make us happy or wealthy, but to make us Christ-like, that we'd have the character of God. What is your hope as you try to disciple a fellow believer within our church to, to not be living in a constant state of anxiety? Is that they might learn to entrust them to the, themselves to the one who judges justly like Jesus did. Well, what is your hope that they can actually trust the one who judges justly? It is that the outpouring of God's power, the supremacy of Christ over all things, would come to bear in their life in subduing their heart and bringing it to trust in peace. What is your hope? That you would have patience as you respond to people who sin against you. What is your hope as you try to battle against a sin that has owned you for years? What is your hope as you struggle with loneliness? What is your hope as you speak to a neighbor who has no attention span to hear anything about God? What is your hope as you kneel and pray for your daughter to be saved? What is your hope as you walk into the church doors next Sunday? It is this. Jesus is not merely with us. He is with us to work to make us like him. This is why Paul will say repeatedly, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, that his aim is to please him. Or in 2 Timothy, that, the, we, that our aim is to please the one who enlisted us. Or in Colossians, that his prayer is that we might walk in a manner that's worthy, fully pleasing him is because by the presence of Christ, we have a power, an, an encouragement, a strength to do these things. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4, we'll end here. So sweet. It's one of my, my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. Speaking of the work of the church, he tells us really bluntly what we need to hear from the Great Commission as well. Let me read it with a little bit of an um, expanded version, if I, if, if I can, where I, I put in some phrases that might help with understanding. He says in verse 7, we have this treasure, maybe I can say it this way, we have this gospel treasure, the treasure of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. We have this treasure in jars of clay, mere pottery that breaks at the slightest impact, cannot withstand or survive any damage. We have this gospel treasure in frail bodies and frail spirits. That's his point. We're fragile. And yet God has desired to put in us the knowledge of a gospel that is the treasure that man holds. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Not to us. What type of missionary can endure traveling to foreign lands 
can endure the pressures of culture and language barriers, can endure the pressures of years of fruitless ministry. What man can endure that? The answer is none. Because we are merely jars of clay. We're fragile. But the strength has never been in the jar, but in the God who preserves it. This is to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us mere clay pots. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted. Now notice this little phrase here, but not what? Forsaken. Because he is with us the whole of every day. You are never forsaken by Jesus. Ever. Because he has said, I will be with you. Till the end of the age. I will be with you. You will never be forsaken, Hebrews 13 tells us. I will be with you. So Paul, in the middle of trial, saying, all others forsook me, but Jesus stood with me because I'm a mere clay pot. And if I were to be abandoned by all but kept by Jesus, I will be strong because of the surpassing power of God, not of Paul. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, What clay pot struck down doesn't break when supported by the surpassing power of God? Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I want you to go down to verse 8, excuse me, verse 16 where he explains a little bit about what's really happening. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. So as we suffer in this life, as we get old in age and are dying, as we are hurt by others, as we live in the context of a congregation of sinners, as we live in a home filled with sinners, as we receive the the repercussions of our own sin, What causes you not to give up? It is that Christ is with you. This must be apprehended by faith. He does not cause you to feel his presence. He doesn't like blow on the back of your neck. You're like, ooh, someone's here. I know Jesus is here. That is not how this thing works. Faith is inherently not sensed. If it's sensed, the Bible would say it's not faith. Okay, so faith is we take God's word. He says, I am with you. And with absolute confidence, every believer in here should know God is with me. I can't face this. This hurts too much. How could I face this? Jesus is with you. Well, how do you know? You can't feel him. You can't see him. He's not audibly talking to you. How do you know he's with you? Because I believe he said he'll be with me. Well, I don't have enough strength to go through this trial of cancer. Well, I'm glad you know that. You don't. But can you go through the trial of cancer? Who will strengthen your soul to not give up the faith, though your body is dying from the inside out? Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. So this is how Jesus ends his ministry to his disciples. 
I am leaving you physically, but I am never leaving you. Right? And all of a sudden, they go from walking by sight of having Jesus physically speak to them, of having Jesus feed them through miracle after miracle, of having Jesus rebuke and comfort and challenge them, to all of a sudden, he's gone. They, like us, have to walk by faith. And here's how he tells them to walk by faith. I am with you the whole of every day. Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He does not tell you this so you can go play club soccer better. He does not tell you this so that you can have a better job. He tells you this because the church work, that is why you are on this earth for, requires it. And whether that church work is you discipling your own child, whether it's you giving the gospel to your neighbor, whether it's you uprooting your family and moving overseas to carry the gospel to foreign nations, the work of living for Christ requires the strength of Christ. Okay, do you see how he's center in this entire commission? Because of his exalted position that he earned and has been granted as a reward by the Father, he now stands as king of kings. He is the universal king over every man. So we go to every man and say, you better follow him. Which brings that second point Jesus says, so go and make followers for me. Because every man is accountable to me. So bring them to disciple, to, to be my disciples, and I will be their rabbi. Have them commit to me and be convinced of the revelation about me. And how can we get this task done? but by supplying on the grace of Jesus Christ and his presence that never abandons us. The church from beginning to end is Christ-centered. We start on the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived, died, and was raised again for us. We move forward by calling men and women to follow Christ. We do our work by saying, obey all that he's commanded. And we do so in the strength that our Savior, Jesus Christ, supplies. From beginning to end, the church is Christocentric. This is how we glorify Christ. Our purpose is to glorify Christ by making disciples and seeing them brought to maturity in Christ-likeness. That is why Crossway exists. It's why you are alive today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Glorify your son through this text this morning, through your church who has heard it, Lord, if there is anyone in this room who does not know Jesus Christ as the better Adam, the better King David, the better lawgiver and Savior and friend and Redeemer and Rescuer and the one who saves our souls from sin, then I ask that you would save them this morning. For the rest of your church, Lord, give us hope and give us courage. Help our eyes to be fixed to Christ and never moving. And may we forever find ourselves walking by faith in our Lord who is always with us. Amen.